0: Our scripture reading today is from 1 John chapters 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Catherine. If you're new around here, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I am thrilled to get to bring God's word to us today. And today, we are embarking on a new journey together, a month-long journey and when I say we, I'm talking about all of us, all New Lifers at all three of our campuses. It's going to be a, a spiritual expedition of sorts, I guess you could say, through the New Testament book of 1 John. And I hope and pray that on this journey, the Lord's going to take all of us to a new place, a place of greater God-confidence in our lives. And when I talk about God-confidence, I'm talking about having that settled assurance in your heart that you really do have a real relationship with God. I'm talking about having an unshakable certainty that you do possess His eternal life within you, that your sins are truly forgiven, that you are justified before Him and that you are righteous in His sight. I'm talking about being able to walk through your days with confidence because you're grounded in the truth of who you are and who he is, and of where you stand with God. I'm talking about also being free to love other people, because you know that you know that you yourself are loved by God. I'm a pastor, and I so want this for you. I so want you to be able to walk through your days in God confidence, and God wants that for you. And he included the book of 1 John in the New Testament, in the Bible, to help us all get there I'm so looking forward to this now as I've mentioned the the last few weeks there are three main ways to participate in this confident campaign these 29 days of growing in God confidence and I'm challenging you to commit to all three imagine that First, uh, there's a daily piece to it, that daily devotional through the book of 1 John, and if you haven't already picked one up, they look like this, I think over 500 of them were taken last week, but we have them in the lobby, it's not too late to start, it actually begins today, and I hope that you will pick one of those up, it's also on digital form uh, on our website, you can download it there, and I'm challenging you to immerse yourself in the book of 1 John these next 29 days, and this devotional will help you do that. That's the first piece. The second piece is getting connected to a small group, a weekly small group, especially during this season. And even though this emphasis begins today, I want you to know it's not too late. You can still get involved with a small group. Groups are gonna start their First John study uh, this upcoming week. Lots of groups to choose from. If you need some help in finding a group that's a good fit, you can stop by our Next Step Center in the lobby when we're done here this morning, and some very nice people there will help you get connected. And uh, if being in a group is new to you, my recommendation is that you'd make an initial commitment to just go for these five weeks to check it out. When that's completed, you can evaluate and see if you want to continue on. But that's a very important piece of this. And then the third piece is, well, you're already doing it, right? Right here, faithfulness in weekend worship together. And for some of you, For some of you, committing to being here five weeks in a row on Sundays is no big deal. That's already in the rhythm of your life, and that's great. For others of you, being here five weeks in a row would be a record of sorts. And I challenge you to set a new record, okay, if that's the case. We're all gonna get the most benefit from this if we make a point of being here and worshiping the Lord with the rest of our church family. And so I challenge you to commit to all three of those. You'll want to take the, the study guide out of your worship folder so you can track along with me. First John is a short little book near the back of your Bible, near the end of the New Testament. It's actually a letter, and it's filled with truth, rock-solid, granite-like truth to build your life on, to build your faith on. First John is all about knowing the truth. Say that with me. Knowing the truth, the truth about God. The truth about Jesus, the truth about the Holy Spirit. First John is about the truth about humanity and about sin and about forgiveness and eternal life. It's full of truth about yourself and about other people and about this world. It also contains truth about Satan and the deceivers who work for him, who are trying to lure us away from the truth. First John was written to help all of us grow more confident through knowing the truth, not just your truth or my truth, but the truth, absolute truth. So first, let me give you some fast facts about First John. First, it's short, five chapters, and if you haven't read a book yet this year, you can get one under your belt in about 20 minutes. I've been listening to First John on audio every morning for the last month, it's short, but it's full of content that is so, so rich. It's also simple, John uses a limited vocabulary, mostly easy words except propitiation, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit. Christianity is pretty simple to John. He's a black and white type of guy. He doesn't deal much with the gray areas. To him, people either have eternal life or they don't. They're either walking in light or in darkness. They either know God or they don't. You're either following Jesus or you're following Satan. He's very clear-cut. It's very simple. And some of you will love 1 John because you're wired that way too. You're a black-and-white type person. John leaves it to the other apostles to delve into those shades of gray and those nuances of meaning. To John, there's just two paths, and you're either on one or the other, and you better get on God's path as soon as you can. Third, 1 John is very Repetitive. Because of that, it's driven a lot of people crazy who are used to the Apostle Paul's writing. John, is, his style is just different. Paul is very linear. Remember, we preach through Romans, very very uh, attorney-like. This point, then this point, then this point, then this point, he's, he builds a case. That's the Apostle Paul. John isn't linear. John is more, what would you call this, radial, maybe, <laughs> He's got four or five themes that he keeps cycling back to and hitting from different angles. So I just need you to know that, going in, so you don't go crazy. It's also very profound. It is short and it is simple, but it's also deeply profound. It sums up, 1 John sums up God's entire message to humanity when it says this, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. It's very profound. It's also very practical. While it does contain a number of theological truths, John has a way of bringing it all right down to where we live our lives every day, and we're gonna see that. And it's purposeful. We don't have to wonder why John wrote his letter. He tells us several times. In chapter one, verse four, he says, he writes the letter to promote joy. How many of us could use some more joy in our lives? Chapter 2 and verse 1, he says he writes it so that Christians will not continue sinning. How about that? Chapter 2 and verse 26, he says he writes it to warn the readers about false teachers who are trying to deceive them. But really, his his overarching purpose in writing this letter is found in chapter 5 and verse 13, where he says, these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to help people become confident in their relationship with God and where they stand with God, to know that they know that they know that they have eternal life. In fact, the word know is a key word in 1 John. It appears 40 times. He's concerned that believers in Jesus not flounder around in uncertainty, but know the truth of who they are and where they stand with God. So as I said, if you're one who wants more joy, if you're somebody who struggles with sin in your life, if you need more discernment, or if you're someone who lacks confidence in your walk with God, 1 John is for you. And this is so important that I wanna pause and pray for the personal guidance and ministry of the Holy Spirit as we walk through this together because I believe God has something for all of us today. So let me pray for you. So Lord, now we've prepared, we've studied, We've read, we've prayed, and I ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be active among us in this room right now, and in Whitehall, and out east at our East Campus. Will you reveal to us, Holy Spirit, you the anointing we have within us. Our resident truth teacher, will you reveal the truth about each person to each person today, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, interesting, the way John goes about helping us know the truth and grow in our confidence is by presenting to us a series of tests, tests by which anybody can know, really, if they're really a Christian, if they've genuinely experienced being born again, having their heart changed by Christ. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, like I did a few months ago, and he runs some tests on you, right? Runs some scans, perhaps. Why does he do that? Well, in order to reveal your true condition, right? The hope is that the test results will reveal what's really going on inside of you so that you will know the truth. Then a treatment plan can be prescribed. Well, really it's the same here, but in a spiritual sense. Dr. John, in a sense, is going to put us through a series of tests designed to reveal our true condition spiritually so we can know what's really going on inside. What are these tests? Well, throughout this letter, we're gonna find four of them. And as I said, he presents them over and over and over and over again. First is a doctrinal test, a doctrinal test. Do you hold fast to what the apostles taught about Jesus? Second test is the sin test. The sin test. Is it your habit to own up to your sins rather than seeking to keep them hidden and concealed? That's the sin test. The third test is the obedience test. Is your heart inclined to please Jesus by doing what he says? And finally, the love test. Is it the pattern of your life to show active compassion and love to fellow believers, especially those in need? So these are four tests. We're gonna see them over and over and over again in the book of 1 John, tests of true salvation because you know what? If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. There will be proof, there will be evidence if you've got the real thing in you. Amen. Obviously the primary application for these tests, and I don't think we're supposed to run around you know, giving this test to others, the primary application is for who? Yourself, right? <laughs> These are for me, to help me know where I stand with God. But I will say, John is also concerned that God's people be discerning about the influence of others, the people we're listening to, the people we're following. Are they the real deal? Or are they imposters posing as Christians who are going to end up leading us astray? These tests can also help us know that. And yes, there is a third application here. It would be be for for the people that we're in community with because our professions of faith in Jesus were meant to be affirmed by others with whom we're doing life together. We'll talk more about that. And a fourth application would be for pastors. Pastors who want their people to walk in confidence of their salvation. John himself had been a pastor. Pastor. And he writes this as an apostle, but also as a pastor, a spiritual shepherd who feels a responsibility for his people. And so it's in that spirit that I'm talking about this with you all today. So here's... There's a reality that's underneath everything John says in this letter, okay? And we need to understand this reality. And it's this. Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. I feel a twinge of discomfort even saying that. But not everybody who professes to know Jesus knows Jesus. We're aware of this, right? I mean, Jesus actually talked a lot about this. He said, there are wheat and there are tares. (laughs) And the tares grow up among the wheat and tares look like wheat. There are professors of faith and there are possessors of faith think about judas who walked the walk talked the talk looked like a christian externally outwardly connected to jesus but he wasn't the real thing this is found over and over in scripture there is saving faith and there is faith that is suspect because there's no evidence jesus gave that haunting statement once to a group of people and he said, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And so I have to be honest, as a pastor who cares for you, who wants God's best for you, my hope and prayer during this month is that if there are any new lifers, listen to me carefully, if there are any new lifers who are deceiving themselves about where they stand with God, my prayer is that that will get revealed to you and you'll realize, oh, I've been a churchian, but I'm not a Christian. <laughs> I'm not really a believer. Yeah, I made a profession of faith in 1974 or 1982 or 1997 or 2003 or 2017, but I don't see any evidence in my own life that I'm a, really a Christian. I mean, it's, it would be good to know that, right? Right? Just like in the medical world, if you have cancer, it's good to know that so that you can begin to address that condition. And so as a pastor, this is one of my prayers for you this, during this month, that there will be a number of you who will come to the realization, I'm not really a Christian, so now I can become one by repenting of my sins and trusting fully in the good news of the gospel. Hope you know my heart about this. The test results will show the truth. First John was written by John. A friend of Jesus, a contemporary of Jesus, probably met Jesus as a young man. He actually ended up writing how many books of the New Testament, do you think? Five. Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and... Revelation, Yeah, that John. He was in Jesus' inner circle of disciples. He knew Jesus personally. He lived with him for three years. He heard Jesus' teachings. He was there that day when Jesus pulled back his robe of flesh and showed the world who he really was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John became one of a select group of men called Apostles who were authorized by Jesus to record what they had seen and heard from Jesus, and then pass that truth on to others. That's why his books are in our Bible, in our New Testament. And so now, as a mature man of God, after years of pastoring a congregation, that is what John is doing here. He's passing on the truth. And so, as we open this up, we note that when John sat down to pen this letter, he was so burdened by the things we've been talking about that he dispenses with normal pleasantries and introductions and just gets right to it. You know, he could, have, he could start out by saying, hey, John here, how's it going? How's the weather in your neck of the woods? Here's what's going on with me. He, he doesn't do any of that right out of the chute. He lays out two of the four tests of salvation that I mentioned earlier. The doctrinal test and the sin test. That's how he starts his letter. Do you hold fast to what the apostles of Jesus taught about Jesus, and is it your habit to own up to your sins rather than to try to keep them hidden? In other words, is your view of Jesus accurate, and are you dealing with your sins? How's that for an opening to a letter? He's saying we can become more confident of our salvation by testing our beliefs about Jesus to see if they align with what the apostles believed about him, and we can boost our confidence even more if we see in our lives a pattern, a pattern of owning up to our sins instead of trying to keep them covered up all the time. So two evidences, two tests of true salvation right here in chapter one. We're gonna unpack them a bit more. First, test number one, the doctrinal test. Do you hold fast to what the apostles taught about Jesus? Again, here's how the letter opens. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, or literally appeared. We have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, appeared to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we being the apostles, that which we apostles have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The language here is a little bit cryptic, but we can figure it out. John opens his letter by talking about a person. This person is someone who, he says, existed from the beginning. He was with the Father, but then he appeared. He was made manifest on the earth. He was called the Word of Life. He was called Eternal Life, and he was called the Son. And if we have any uncertainty about who it is, he then names him in verse 3, Jesus Christ. So John starts out by testifying about Jesus. He's a good, gospel-driven man. Centered in the gospel, he wants to start out talking about Jesus, and his testimony about Jesus agrees with the testimony of the other apostles. Here it is. Here's the testimony of the, of the apostles. We experienced Jesus firsthand. We know for sure who he was. We're proclaiming him to you. He's actually our message. We have fellowship with God through knowing Jesus. You can too. And telling you the message of Jesus brings us great joy. Amen. Did you notice all that sensory language that John used when he talked about Jesus? Do you see that? We heard him. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. Why does he say it that way? Well, he uses that kind of sensory language in order to combat a particular teaching that was making the rounds in those days. Some teachers were going around speaking to Christian people and they were claiming that Jesus didn't really have a material physical body. Now that sounds weird, right? So the teaching was called Gnosticism and this is the early form of Gnosticism. There was an offshoot a of branch called the Docetists and the Gnostics basically believed that All matter is evil and spirit is good. And so the idea was if Jesus was really the pure son of God, he couldn't have had a physical body because that would have made him evil. And so they taught that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body, that he was actually kind of this phantom figure, like Jesus the ghost. Because in their worldview and their philosophy, Physical bodies were evil, were sinful, as all all the material world, all matter. Kind of weird, right? (laughs) So, right off the bat, John, out of the chute, counters that view. He says, No, no, no. We lived with the man. We ate with him. We hugged him. We fished with him. We saw him eat fish sandwiches. He had a body. He was a real man. He was no phantom. Now, here's the point of all this. Here's the point. True Christians think right thoughts about Jesus. They believe in the real Jesus. They believe what Peter and James and John wrote about Jesus. They grow in their confidence of who Jesus is by trusting the testimony of those first-century apostles because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They knew him personally. You know what, deviant groups, cults, pseudo-Christian groups have always sought to tamper with the apostolic testimony about Jesus and alter it somehow. These groups say, and some knock on my door the other day, they, there's two extremes of, of what they teach. They'll say either Jesus wasn't fully God or he wasn't fully human. This is rampant, Right? Every cultic group, every pseudo-Christian group wants to tamper with the identity of Jesus and diminish him somehow, divide him up somehow, and here's the result, they end up creating their own Jesus, who's not the real Jesus that's in the Bible. He's he's fictional, he's a concoction of their own minds. They they preach a Jesus who didn't really say the things that the real Jesus said that are recorded in scripture. He didn't really do the things the real Jesus did that are recorded in scripture. They've made up Jesus. Paul talked about this. He talked about another Jesus who's, who's fictional. John was worried that these false teachers were influencing his readers to embrace a fake Jesus. And frankly, I'm worried about that in our day. I think there's a lot of teachers who are teaching a Jesus who isn't the Jesus that we find in the pages of the New Testament in accordance with the apostolic testimony and record. And John knew that if you believe in a pseudo Jesus, then you are a pseudo Christian. You're not following the man. The God-man, Jesus. So what we believe about Jesus matters. If we believe in a Jesus who is somehow less than what the apostles reported him to be, that false Jesus can't save anybody. Only the true Jesus is alive today. Only he can save people from their sins. People who call upon him in faith. So here's the question on this point, to what extent, listen now, to what extent do you trust the apostles' testimony about Jesus that's recorded in this book? And second, have you ever called out to that Jesus, the real Jesus, to save you from your sins? Has there ever been a point in time in your life when you recognized your true condition before God as a sinful person and said, Jesus, I need you to save me. You're my only hope or I'm doomed. That's the beginning point of eternal salvation. During this series, if you are a genuine believer, I pray the Holy Spirit will strengthen your confidence that you are truly forgiven and made righteous by the real Jesus. And if not, I implore you to turn to the real Jesus today and put your life and your eternity in his hands. So, are you with me so far? The first test, the doctrinal test, do you hold fast? you hold fast to what the apostles said about Jesus. But after opening with that, John moves quickly to the next test. Obviously this was on his heart too, and this is the sin test. Is it your habit, here's the test question, is it your habit, is it your pattern in life to own up to your sins rather than seeking to keep them hidden? Verse five, this is the message. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Man, that's rich. (laughs) We're gonna be taught by John three big truths about God in this letter. God is life, God is light and God is love. God is the very definition of those three beautiful concepts. And so the big question for people is this, are you in fellowship with this God? The God who is life and light and love. Meaning fellowship, the original word is koinonia. We know this word. Many of us do, partnership, relationship. Are you in relational partnership with this God? Are you in fellowship with the God who is life and light and love? By the way, this is what we were saved for. We know we were saved from some things. Here's what we were saved for, to walk with God, to be in fellowship with God, like our first ancestors were, Adam and Eve, back in the garden, right? What were they doing? It says they walked with God. Like, walked with God. Can you imagine what that was like? They were, they were in his presence. They were marveling at, at the things he had made together. They were laughing together, enjoying life together. This word koinonia could mean doing life together with God. It's what we were made for. We know what happened in Genesis chapter 3, the downfall, but prior to that they were walking with God and it's what Jesus seeks to restore for his people, that we can walk with God again, be close to him, abide in him, worship him, to have fellowship with God. John is telling his readers that this is possible and this is God's purpose for us. How glorious is that? he's applying a test here, a second test. He's saying that there are people in this world who claim to be in fellowship with God like that. They claim to be Christians, they claim to be doing life with God, but their claim is suspect because they fail the sin test. They say they are saved. They're like, yeah, I'm born again, I'm a Christian. But they're not as evidenced by the fact that they're not regularly dealing with their sins. They are professors of saving faith, but not possessors of saving faith. So he presents three false claims here. They're in verses 6, 8, and 10 that these people are making. First, some were saying, I can be in fellowship with God while living a sinful lifestyle with no repentance. And that was part of that Gnostic Thinking that, you know, spirit and body are separate and one is good and one is evil. It's kind of like, yeah, I can be close to God and my body can do whatever. It doesn't matter. Second claim that's false those who are saying, you know what? I've risen to such a level of maturity in my life that there is no more sin in my heart. Verse, verse 8 If we say that we have no sin, there were people who evidently were saying, I've arrived at that pinnacle of sinless perfection. There's no, not a shred of sin left in my heart. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, I've never in my life, some people were evidently saying, I've never sinned. It's funny, I was playing pickleball last week with a guy, and uh, we're back in the locker room together afterwards, you know, we're all gross and sweaty, and I'm asking him what he does for a living when he's not playing pickleball, and he tells me, and he's like, well, what do you do? I'm like, well... I'm a pastor actually. You know what he said right out of the shoot? He said, well we need more pastors because we're all sinners. I thought that was pretty good. The conversation begins to open up now into a spiritual place. Three claims and John responds to the people who would say these things, not true, not true, not true. Claim number one, not true. Sure, you can say whatever you want. You can say you're in fellowship with God, but the truth is you can't be in fellowship with the God who is light and be walking in darkness. That's a contradiction. It's a lie, he says. If you really are that close to God, you'll be in the light and you'll be seeing your true condition before him. The light will be shining on you and exposing the blemishes and the flaws. The second claim, if we say we have no sin, he says, if you're a person who thinks there's zero sin left in your heart now that Jesus has saved you, he says, you're deceived. None of us has reached such an elevated state of spiritual maturity that every last shred of sin in our hearts is gone. Even the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, said, I haven't arrived. I'll tell you what, if the Apostle Paul hadn't arrived, you haven't arrived, and I haven't arrived. And then that third claim, He says, if you're somebody who tells other people that you've never sinned in your whole entire life, you are crazy. You're making God out to be a liar because he says in his word, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I get to thinking about these claims and it occurs to me that human beings have a natural tendency to do anything else but own their sins. Admit it, confess it, repent of it. True back then, true today. We humans avoid dealing with our sin in a variety of creative ways. We justify our sin. We rationalize it by saying, that's just who I am, right? Especially in in our day. (laughs) it's just who I am, man. We blame shift like our original ancestors did. Who did Adam blame for his sin? Ter, Ter fault. The woman you gave me. Actually, he kind of blamed God too, didn't he? You gave me this woman. She made me sin. What did Eve say? It was a snake. <laughs> and humans have been blame shifting ever since. Your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault. Just, just think about our government these days. <laughs> Who's taking ownership? Who's taking responsibility? Everybody's pointing fingers. It's epidemic. We seek to cover it up and keep it hidden. We say, well, maybe if I just ignore it, these feelings, these guilt feelings I have will just go away. We minimize it. We say, it's not really that bad. And besides that, other people do a lot, things a lot worse than this. We redefine it. It's just a mistake, just a little, just a little slip up there. We humorize it with LOL. And we just outright deny it. You got the wrong guy. I didn't do it. It's not me. in one of his other books, this same apostle John wrote this, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We think we're better off if we can keep it all concealed and hidden and in the dark. What John is saying here is very simple. True Christians deal with their sin. They admit their sins to themselves, to God, and in some cases to other people. What they thought, what they said or what they did or what they didn't think or didn't say or didn't do was wrong was wicked, was evil do you ever confess your sins true Christians realize that sin is what breaks fellowship with God sin is what damages relationships with other people the reality is this, coming to grips with our sin is the way we became Christians in the first place you can't be a Christian if you don't Stop and pause and own your sins, right? Because it's not until then that you, you know that you need a savior to, be, to save you from your sins. Coming to the realization, I got a big problem that I can't solve myself. My sin is separating me from a holy God. I deserve to be judged. God, I need you to solve this for me because I can't solve it myself. Amen. That's how you become a Christian, by humbling yourself to that point. And here's what John is saying. People who genuinely did that at first, humbly own their sins, will continue to do so as a pattern of their life. Not to get resaved over and over and again, not to get born again, 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 and again, but to keep the airways clear between them and their father humbly confessing wrongdoing will become a pattern, will become a habit in the lives of true Christians. Can't stress this enough. As I said, people become Christians by admitting their sin and then by believing and embracing the good news of the gospel and that's what John proclaims next in chapter two, verse one, but if anyone does sin We have an advocate, the word means defense attorney, with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous or the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh, how I want to spend an hour unveiling the glories of propitiation. John uses many, 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 many simple words in this letter and then one big one (laughs) because there's really no other word for it. This word means wrath remover. It means sin atoner. It means satisfying sacrifice. Jesus is the satisfying sacrifice for our sins, he says. If that's a newer thought to you, what this means is that Jesus is the one who received the blow of God's holy and just wrath in our place. He he took it for us. It means he took my judgment that I deserve for my sins by serving my death sentence in my place. It means that Jesus, listen, got what we deserved so we could receive what he deserved. He took our judgment and death so that we could receive his life and his acceptance. It means that God poured out his holy wrath on his son so that he could pour out his great mercy on us. And by the way, that means that he has no more wrath left for you. I told this to a young lady the other day who was tormented by guilt. I said, listen, I know there's stuff going on in your life, it might be God's discipline and correction, but I'll tell you what, it's not, it's not his wrath, he doesn't have any wrath left for you. He poured out all of his wrath, every last drop on his son so that he could shower us with mercy. Jesus is our propitiation, our wrath remover, he took the blow. And you know what I'm glad about right now? I am so glad that this word appears again in chapter four, because then I can explore it more fully then propitiation is at the core of the good news, it's at the core of the gospel, that he took our place. That's what true Christians have believed for millennia. Here's the point, if you are one who wants to be in fellowship with God, you must walk in the light. Walking in the light means dealing honestly with your sins. True Christians who really do possess God's eternal life don't try to keep their sins covered up. Have you ever heard Proverbs 28, 13 before? Is it on your outline? Would you, would you read it out loud with me? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. First John 1, 9 is right in the passage we're studying. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing you or I could do that is outside the scope of the mercy and grace of God, the cleansing, forgiving grace of God, all unrighteousness. Listen, Christian people are not those who never sin. Aren't you glad? He's already said that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? And he says it again in chapter 2 and verse 1. But if anyone does sin... So be clear on this, this is not the test of sinless perfection. If that was the test, there would be no Christians. Amen. We'd all fail it. But it is the test of owning sin, of bringing out it out into the light, of naming it, calling it what God calls it. By the way, that's what confess means, the word, the original word, logeo, to say the same thing that God says about it. I say what you say about what happened. And confession includes accepting the consequences that may result from confessing our sins. In fact, I believe that's a primary way you can tell if someone's confession is genuine. They're willing to accept the consequences. So if you are one who would love to be more confident of your own salvation, that you know God, then confess your sins often. When God shows you something in your mind or in your heart or in your behavior or in your choices or decisions that's out of of alignment with his will, own it. Own it to yourself. Confess it to God. Call it what he calls it. Yes, that was sin. I do this. I've confessed, you know, I know you think that I'm, it's not true. I'm, I'm, There is sin in my heart. I've confessed sins this week. I confessed a sin to an accountability partner this week. And it was good for my soul to do it. Because it's pride. It's pride that keeps us from confessing. It's pride that says, keep that thing secret, keep it concealed. You don't want to you don't want your image to be marred in front of people. That's pride coming to the rescue. For some of you, the best thing you can do with your sin is not only to admit it yourself and confess it to God, but to share it with somebody else because that will puncture your pride and at the root of sin is pride. I believe the Lord is going to speak to us throughout this series. I think he's going to speak to us during our small group times together. I know he's going to speak to us through our daily devotional guide as we walk through his word together in 1 John. Maybe you're gonna have a breakthrough moment in the middle of February, maybe towards the end of February, but I'm pretty convinced that for some people in this room, the moment that God is speaking powerfully to you about this is right now. It's his mercy to take us through 1 John 1 together and call us to walk in the light and get honest about our sin. Let's not take our cues from Bill Cosby. Let's not take our cues on this from Harvey Weinstein. I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Deny, 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 and I saw him on TV this week and he's all, he's all hunched over and, and it's taking, he's a tormented soul and it's taking its toll on him. This is not the way of the follower of Jesus. We can be free from that. I believe it's, the Lord is telling us it's time to step out of the shadows to bring that thing into the light to come clean. Yes, it'll be hard. Yes, it'll be painful. Yes, it'll be embarrassing. Yes, it'll be humbling. Yes, your pride will get punctured, and that's a good thing. Yes, there will probably be consequences, but what's the alternative? If we keep trying to keep it secret, keep it covered, cover, 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 cover our tracks, that sin is gonna continue dominating us. Our conscience is gonna continue tormenting us. Our vitality and our confidence will continue to be drained away Listen, it's the work of Satan the deceiver to whisper into our ears that keeping it keeping it hidden is smart. Hell yeah, it's smart. That's what you ought to do. That that's Satan. That's the way to save ourselves. When I think back over thirty-five years of ministering to people, I can say this it's the confessors who end up prospering spiritually, not the concealers, not the hiders. It's the humble who are rewarded by God, not the proud. There are two quotes about sin that the Lord often reminds me of. You've heard these before. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And second, sin remains unconquered until it is uncovered. I ask you today, what sin has been plaguing you? What sin that you, do you find you just keep giving in, you just keep giving in? What happened to your joy? What happened to your God confidence? It's been siphoned off. I want you to know that 1 John 1, 9 is still true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I say, A merciful God wants to hear your confession today. Step into the light, brother. Come clean to God, sister. Own it to yourself. I did it. Confess it to God. I agree with you that it was sinful. Admit it to appropriate others. I've sinned and I'm humbling myself and hoping for healing by confessing it to you and turn away from it. I hate my sin. I'm disgusted with it. By God's grace, I'm ridding myself of it. And for some of you, I would say this, you need to confess it to somebody else. That's the sticking point for you. Appropriate person, a trusted person, a confidant person, but that's what will break its power in your life. As long as it stays hidden and concealed, it has power, but when you bring it into the light, it loses its power. Do You understand what I'm saying? I've confessed my sins to other people on many occasions, including my wife, I've heard confessions through the years, many. A secret gambling addiction, secret sexual sin, pornography, arrogant, pharisaical pride, horrible attitude, mistreating my spouse, sexual affair, porn addiction, envy. In those cases, when people brought it into the light, you could just see some power. Something changed in the climate, in the atmosphere. Power is broken when we bring it into the light. I've alerted our prayer partners today that some of you might come to them today with a confession. And I'm gonna be down here also, okay? It will remain confidential. You can come and be prayed for anything. Some of you need to come and be saved. Like come to Jesus and give him your life today. But perhaps there are people in this room, and I'm certain that there are, who need to come and confess a sin to somebody else, a trusted spiritual confidant, and let them pray God's grace into your life. So would you bow your heads with me? And I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to take their place. I'm gonna pray that the Lord will reveal to you if this is an essential step for your confession and repentance today. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you through your spirit would speak to the precious people in front of me. And Lord, if someone today would be freed up by confessing to you their sin, would you grant them the grace to do that, to just say yes, Lord, yes, this is true of me. Cleanse me from my sin. And if there are those who would experience a new measure of freedom by coming and confessing it to a prayer partner. Not sugarcoating it, not dancing around it, just saying, this is what I did, and I'm confessing it. Lord, would you just remove their shame in advance and give them the courage to do that, and then pour out your grace. Whoever conceals his sins will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Do your work among us in these next few moments, I pray.